But it says that after you've had your fill, everything else that is left doesn't belong to you. Even if you own it, it belongs to the poor. And so that's, that's the way that the church thinks. And it's not really the way that Webb seems to be thinking. It's not always. We are out of time. Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we discuss all the topics that you were told not to discuss in polite company. My name is Jose. And my name is Christina. And this week, we will be continuing our discussion with Sam Rocha about socialism, as well as several other issues, including race. But first, what do we have on tap? Well, what do we have on tap? So I went and bought a six-pack of Guinness Extra Stout. Nice. Yeah, it's really good. I was in the mood for Guinness. Yes. So I, I'm the one that actually suggested that, that you get Guinness because uh, it's been a minute. It has been. I used to love going to the bar mm. back when bars were open. Yeah. And getting a pint of Guinness out of the tap. It's like a meal in itself. Yeah, and it would have that foamy head at the mm. top. And if it, was, if it was a really good bartender, mm-hmm. they could make like a four-leaf or three-leaf clover oh. on top of the uh, foam. Nice. Yeah, it was, oh, those were the days. <laughs> but I don't go to bars. And then now, with yeah. the whole coronavirus, the bars are closed anyway. Yeah. So we've got to uh, just have our own little bar here. Yeah. Share your beer in summer scorch, though unheard that secret rhythm is to blame for love and schism is to blame for all emissions. And now, the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Christina and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for about two minutes, though we tend to be long-winded, so that isn't a strict time limit. This week, I'm going to discuss a disturbing video that I watched recently, and I actually showed you part of it. On June 25th, a pro-life activist slash celebrity named Abby Johnson uh, posted a video on her YouTube channel entitled My Biracial Boy. Now, she's famous for having been a former employee of Planned Parenthood who had a conversion, and now she's kind of a champion against so-called abortion rights. There's even a movie about her experience entitled Unplanned, which I don't think we've watched. I I told you I can't. I watched the trailer. Mm -hmm. I just, I can't bring myself to watch it because of the content. I, for one, am against abortion. I mean, it's life to me. It's life. Mm -hmm. And in no way, shape, or form do I want to be subjected to watching, even in... On the big screen, you know, it's not real. This happens every single day. Right. I don't want to be subjected to and, and watch uh, the killing of a life, even though it is for the cause. Right. For a greater good of educating yourself. Yeah. Well, she's problematic anyway, so I wouldn't want to watch, I wouldn't watch the movie for that yeah. reason yeah. as well. But she's made numerous racist statements in the past. She's also a MAGA and Trump enthusiast. She's been pretty vocal against, you know, wearing masks and social distancing and everything closing uh, during the pandemic. So she's a whole mess of 
problems. I take issue with referring to her as a pro-life celebrity or even just as being pro-life. Right. I, I think she's a walking, talking oxymoron. Yeah. yeah. So that segues into the video, our biracial boy. Basically, in this video, she lets the world into her thinking process, um, into the way she sees her biracial son. So here's a quote that really stood out to me. She says, her adorable, perpetually tan-looking little brown boy, but one day he's going to grow up and he's going to be a tall, probably sort of large, intimidating-looking, maybe brown man. So she's already... Maybe as if his skin color is going to change. Is it going to turn purple? Is it going to turn green? What other color would it change to? And would that other color be better than black? Right. I mean, let's just call it what it is. But that's not even the real issue. She's already saying, like, her son's going to grow up and be intimidating looking because he's black. Yeah. Um, And then she goes on to say that she studies statistics, which, yeah, that's not true at all based on what she's saying but let's give her the benefit of the doubt i would like for her to share her research that she's apparently done but she says that black men are in jail in large numbers for violent crimes so therefore a police officer who encountered her grown-up son her grown-up biracial son would be quote-unquote smart to be careful uh with her son because he could potentially be violent he could potentially be a violent offender because of the color of his skin exactly because he's black so this white officer has Mm -hmm. every right to be intimidated by her black son is what she's saying exactly and she says that would not make her angry at all she would understand that would be reasonable based on statistics i want to know who the hell in what court of law gave this woman Mm-hmm. This precious black child to raise. Exactly. So by contrast, she says her two white sons would grow up to be nerdy looking and pose no threat whatsoever. So the police would not be scared of her two sons, her two white sons. So this is completely <sighs> disgusting and horrific. And I, I think for the pro-life movement, they need to kick her to the curb because she's quite problematic clearly racist and i think it's i have a lot of concern i would say for her son her biracial son growing up with a woman who thinks this way is i i just hope that i hope and pray that that her two white sons Mm -hmm. grow up to be more intelligent Mm -hmm. more educated more compassionate more loving than their ignorant mother for sure and i want to thank Simka Fisher for reporting on this video. Um, you can check out her website, simkafisher.com, for more. She has the video, the transcript of the video, and then she had a roundtable discussion with black men and black women um, to kind of dissect and reflect on Abby oh, Johnson's wow. video. That's so good. I watched it. It's about an hour long. Okay. So, yeah, check out the video. I encourage you. So, yeah. That's my friend talk. All right. It's a lot. It's pretty heavy. Yeah, it is pretty heavy and pretty enraging i would think to anyone who's got common sense or compassion in their heart or just an ounce of love or just unborn life Mm -hmm. but black life i just can't i can't even Mm -hmm. that segues nicely into your fred talk yes my fred talk um i'll be talking about emmanuel acho i love watching stuff on youtube 
uh, many different programs. And I came across his show, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Now, first, um, Emmanuel Acho is a former NFL linebacker who played for the Cleveland Browns and Philadelphia Eagles. And now he just has this show that I think is just what we need right now um, as far as being a love bridge between white people and black people Mm -hmm. and bridging that gap and having those uncomfortable conversations and educating ourselves and understanding uh, one another. But it's really about white people understanding blacks Mm -hmm. and, and everything that they've gone through and the ripple effect that it's had that's led us to now. Mm -hmm. Um, The first episode that I watched was with Matthew McConaughey. Mm -hmm. That was my introduction to the show. And if you have not watched the show, please watch. Look it up on YouTube. Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Uh, The first episode I watched was with Matthew McConaughey. It was amazing. I loved Matthew's questions to Emmanuel. You know, um, what can I do as a white man? What is my responsibility? What is your responsibility? Um, And so to watch them have dialogue and go back and forth and really have a good understanding of one another and um, informing each other and just having the conversation, just having the conversation for for you and I to watch, Mm -hmm. for everyone to watch was just so eye-opening to me. And, and I feel like my eyes just keep getting bigger and bigger as right. far as being awake and open. Mm-hmm. You know, just diving deeper into to oneself, me for sure, how I can learn more, how uh, I can be better, not just for me entirely, but for, you know, my black brothers and sisters uh, as well. And I call them my black brothers and sisters because I believe that we are all made in God's image. Mm -hmm. They are a reflection of him as a mine. And we then make up one body. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just appalled at where we are in this day and age and how far we have yet to go in this country. Mm -hmm. It's just upsetting. Right. So one thing that really did uh, stand out to me in the midst of their conversation together was um, Matthew quoted uh, a Langston Hughes poem. And that poem is titled, Let America Be America Again. Oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet. (laughs) And yet must be the land where every man is free. That's powerful. That's the realest thing that I've truly heard because it's acknowledging America, we've never been what we've aspired to be. We can be, but it's going to take this and it's going to take those watching this to imitate this. It was just very profound and very relevant as to um, now and what is yet to come. Mm -hmm. I really took a a lot away from just that particular episode. Right. 
with Emmanuel and, and Matthew McConaughey, and there, there are other episodes as well. So two things I just want to add to that. One, white people need to be okay with being uncomfortable. I keep saying this. White people are limiting the conversation to what makes them comfortable. Yes. Oh, you're talking about white privilege, or oh, you're talking about racism. These things make me feel uncomfortable. Therefore, that's where the conversation needs to stop, and now you're being extreme. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, like, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let you talk and tell me about what you have actually experienced. Mm-hmm. Not just data and numbers and figures, but what have you experienced as a black American? Right. And then two, to what Matthew McConaughey said, we are a nation of promise and hope. Uh-huh. So we have never fulfilled the promise. Correct. It's always kind of in the distance, like a mirage. Yes. And I think the thing with America is, you know, it's it's a marathon, mm-hmm. right? It's not a sprint. And mm-hmm. so it's taken us hundreds of years to get to this point. Right. It's injustice after injustice, but the goal is always we will get there. We're not yet there. Right. But the hope is that one day we will get there. Yeah. And in, in this particular moment in time with all that's going on, we have two ears and uh, one mouth for a mm-hmm. reason. And we need to be listening. We need to listen more and and talk less when it comes to wanting to understand, to be better. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just think listening to people's experiences and, and what's gone on is so beneficial to our learning and understanding. Mm -hmm. And of course we need to be vocal about things but it would do us a a a great amount of good to listen right now how can love conquer where they would rob the lawful possessor distort the functions of the state and create utter confusion in the community. And now for utter confusion, I introduce to you Sam Rogan. So let me ask you this then. This is maybe a controversial yeah. <laughs> question. But um, okay, this is this is horrible. But let me ask it. <laughs> Can a good Catholic also be a true capitalist? <laughs> in the truest sense. I mean, here we should be generous to the possibilities of capitalism, right? Is true capitalism like, like should I do to my to to the to this perceived capitalist what Trent does to the socialists? No, I don't think I should. I don't believe the true capitalist is a Randian. I don't believe the true capitalist is an anarcho-capitalist. I don't believe the true capitalist is Mark Cuban. I don't believe the true capitalist is Donald Trump. I believe the true capitalist is probably someone who believes in the value of hard work and the virtues that come from a certain kind of fiscal responsibility and a kind of common sense understanding of the limits of certain resources. Like my grandpa was a lifelong Democrat and lifelong, but like he wouldn't shop at Walmart because Walmart as a small business owner, it broke something sacred for him about the American way of life. It was un-American to him to shop at Walmart. 
mm-hmm. you know, and he would go and pay double somewhere else. He he was a small business owner who who had a good Mexican restaurant. <laughs> like yeah. I mean, he was he could afford that, you know. But like for him, there was something moral about that, and like you know, it took me a long time to appreciate that. Like he was a capitalist. He had a small business. He paid a lot of people. Did he pay them as much as they deserved? Well, I think I'd like to think he paid them as much as he could afford to pay them. He he abided by the law. He paid them certainly more than minimum wage. You know, um, a market price. I think my grandfather was a good Catholic and a true capitalist in this sense, but I also believe that he was haunted by certain realities about capitalism, like Walmart, like monopolies, that were morally offensive to him. And I feel like today, capitalism is real and it's not going anywhere, and I don't believe it makes any sense for even a socialist like me to to act high and mighty about it. We're having this interaction over Skype. I'm talking into an RE20 microphone. I am very well paid at this university. You know, like, you know, I, I don't, I grew up poor, so I kind of value a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes no sense to me to like kick off on the capitalists. I just wish though that the, that the people who speak on behalf of capitalism were half as morally uh, concerned as my grandfather was, or as they are about a kind of communism that, frankly speaking, is off the table in American society, right? Right, but that's the boogeyman that they always go to. Of course. So when Barack Obama puts forth, you know, a healthcare plan that's basically maintaining private industry, totally that's socialism. Yeah. Well, I hate I hate Obamacare because it's capitalist. <laughs> well, see, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> like I, so much I believe being socialist. I know. I believe in single payer. You know. And by the way, it's not because of like what I like. It's just because yeah, a lot of people who didn't have insurance got uh, got it, but not everyone. And when and and if we believe in the preferential option for the poor, then our healthcare system is only as good as how it serves those who have the least access to it. And to me, Obama maybe improved, but he didn't get there. Like, yeah, the boogeyman thing, though, is real, and it's called Red Scare. Like, it's a documented historical fact that the U.S. has done this. To me, what's interesting about that is, like, right now, you can even see on the Matt Frad and Horn interview, is they're not just talking about socialism. They're also talking about Black Lives Matter and BLM. And there's become this new narrative that BLM is communism. To me, it's kind of a bit wonky, right? Like, they cite like a website or like some, you know, this or that, but that like, you know, anyone who proclaims that Black Lives Matter is in some sense endorsing Marxist ideology or whatever. We should insult people's intelligence, I don't think, to say like, this is clearly propaganda style. I mean, if you want to say that, like, again, you need a lot more evidence to be able to get away with that. And so I think another side of this is that it's very clear that like, Catholics cannot in America cannot be told you can't be like a member of the Democratic Party because there's lots of them and that you can't vote for Democrats because a lot of Catholics do. But there's become this narrative that started, I believe, with both like the Reagan movement, uh, especially amongst like the in the like in the Latino community, most especially the Cubans, right? Because they're all anti So like I give Cubans a lot of leeway on this stuff. I have a lot of friends of mine in Florida, and like I actually 
see for them when they go flip out about socialism it's because their families left behind an entire life you know uh when batista and and, and castro sh showed up and rebuilt themselves from the ground up and stuff like that and so like someone like that with a story like that i'm much more comfortable with being like yeah dude you should probably be a capitalist because <laughs> like you have like some real beef you know yeah but these people people who don't have that kind of reaction who react so strongly i think they're more reacting to like i said before a kind of propaganda and my worry in the church is that propaganda within the church comes with these heavy moral overlays because we have concepts like sin and salvation and before you know it you can have people walking around believing that like if i read karl marx or if i vote for a democrat or if i say you know maybe healthcare is like a human right that not only will I be like wrong on po politics, but like maybe I'm going to hell. Maybe I am bad or maybe I can't take communion on Sunday. These are, are burdens on the conscience that, to be completely honest, Catholics in other countries think is bonkers. They're just like, whoa. Yeah. Like it's like a GoFundMe situation all over again. Like how do you all think that? You know, all my friends in other countries thought this debate was stupid. And not, <laughs> not, not because Trent, not because of me or Trent. Because whenever they see socialists, they see a viable party within their country that you can choose to associate freely with or not. And Catholics and every country socialist party have like a wing of that party usually, except for in the United States. Yeah. So, OK. In the debate with Trent, he brought up that there really aren't socialist countries in Europe. Like he, I think he mentioned Sweden, where yeah. is that kind of what you're – pushing more forward where you maintain in some sense capitalism but there's a socialist quality to it yeah i think trent and i probably agree on this uh with one exception so trent believes that that support of social welfare programs is not the same as being a true socialist to me this is patently absurd especially because he clearly is against medicare for all because that's his one of the examples of the hospitals medicare yeah. for all is a provision of healthcare as a part of what the welfare state offers, right? Every country in the in the world today does that with the exception of the United States. And uh, even some states in the United States do offer that. So like in Texas, we have the CHIP program, which is for, for really poor people because I was, I was a CHIP kid. Uh, WIC program, women, infants, and children. So he wants to say like those programs, WIC and CHIP and Medicare and Medicaid, those don't count as socialism. Well, how do you think those things were invented? Like, who brought that policy forward? Whose politics motivated them to write that bill or to commit themselves to the, to the year years of activism that brought that case before the Supreme Court or whatever? I know who. Socialists. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, in terms of the United States, I don't buy Trent's – idea about welfare not being socialist because while yes it's true we should make a distinction between advocacy for socialist policy as opposed to advocating for sort of all things considered some kind of a socialist but socialists today are kind of people who say all we do is advocate for policy like the dsa basically exists to troll the democrats to the left that's all they do yeah. right so when we get to sweden or to the nordic countries yeah 
those are welfare states that benefit on a very robust capitalist uh, economies. And also, by the way, very small demographics. They're mostly look the same and talk speak the same seven languages. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's fair to say that the socialist politics and parties in those countries haven't had everything to do with their incredibly high minimum wage, with their incredibly low uh, 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 hour work days and work weeks, with their incredibly high uh, um, uh, uh, periods of, of maternity leave and of vacation. Uh, you see what I mean? Like those yeah. things don't just pop out of nowhere. They come from pressure that usually comes from people defending labor politics or social politics or social democracy. So, you know, while, but but I, I would agree with Trent though, that capitalism has a positive role to play there. And that's part of what it means to be a democratic capital D socialist is that Maybe, the, you're not an autocratic socialist, you're a democratic socialist. I don't think he understood what you meant. So he was confused, I think, when you were mentioning that, you know, you wanna appeal to the community or to like the people not necessarily have everything owned by the state. You're not a statist. Yeah. What's the difference there? Because he seemed it. confused. Well, I mean, I, I think in some ways, I don't think he actually understood the meaning of democracy politically. He took it to be like majority rule because that's what he asked me. And I was quick to correct yeah. him on the language, which like the etymology of the word democracy in Greek, demos kratos, means uh, people power. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't tell you a lot about what it means. It just kind of corrects the one thing. It was a bit of a kind of a quick move I, I used. What, what I meant, though, is that like democracy simply means that there's some adequate and proportional way for the voice of the people to express itself into the form of governance. And you'll notice that in the American elections system, for instance, we don't have a direct democracy. We have a representative democracy. And even at federal elections, we don't count the votes and then take the one who gets the most. Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than Donald Trump did. She yeah. lost because of a deeply socialist institution called the Electoral College, which redistributes the value of one vote according to uh, particular zones and allocations that ultimately are allocated at a state level. So North Dakota, which is the least populous state in the country, is actually given more power than it actually has so that it doesn't suffer from the, wait for it, alienation <laughs> of being disenfranchised and so that the country isn't just run by LA and New York City, right? Right. Uh, I know the Electoral College is kind of controversial on the left. A lot of people want to abolish it. I like the Electoral College. I think it needs to be adjusted, but the reason I like it are for socialist principles. It allows for people who live in rural communities and in low populated states to not feel alienated from their country because they have no capacity to affect its governance. And so that to me is an example of democracy. It's not a majority decision. It's how do we proportionally allocate so that all the people feel like they have some power. Because whenever the people in North Dakota feel like they have no power, they're gonna suffer the moral effects of alienation, blah, 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 so on and so forth. So to me, the meaning of democracy is how do you give people the guarantee of power, of political power? And that's what demos kratos, people power means. There's a lot of different ways to proportion that. And yes, there are 
majority, minority. It does come down to numbers at some level. But those numbers are – those quantities are also qualitative. And that's what I think democracy really means in the real world, uh, parliamentary style governments, representative, all kinds. That's why we have a tricameral, a bicameral system with the judiciary. And it's balancing powers, power, right? And those powers come from certain electoral processes. And so like to me, like it was kind of a, a, a civics problem with Trent that he didn't understand the meaning of democracy, how it functions realistically in the real world, like you were talking, and then how a socialist who puts democracy as the qualifier criteria for their socialism is like, look, we don't want the state or some authority that's not the people's power deciding for, for the minimum wage to go up. We only want the minimum wage to go up to $15 like it is in Seattle and in the state of Washington if and only if we can create enough people power to express itself appropriately through the mode of government in order for these changes to come up. And that's why socialists like the DSA or even the Democratic Party to some extent lobbies on behalf of these social policies, right? That's the meaning of socialism. I think everybody knows this. I don't know why it was so difficult, you know. Yeah, that was a really bizarre moment. I, I love Trent. and I have been following him for years and I've read some of his Smart guy his tracks. and a good debater, by the way. I mean, he wrote out all those responses. I sent him my case like the same moment I sent it to everyone else. It was like a half hour before we started. Uh-huh. And he was like loaded, like ready to go the moment we yeah. started. Like he was reading manuscripts. Like I have a lot of respect for his um, – uh, his intensity, uh, his you know, uh, his ability to think on the spot, and and clearly, you know, debate is 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 something he's really excels at. I called him a pro because I've been watching him on YouTube. You know, I have to say, I've seen him debate people, and you think he's my opponent, so I would kind of root against him. I didn't root for him, but every debate I saw him have, he I he won in my view. He took people apart in cross examination. I mean, he's a formidable. Uh, uh, a person, and I have an enormous amount of respect for him. I absolutely, totally agree with everything you just said. But it, I think there is almost like a political filter sometimes when he approaches certain issues to where it's almost like a handicap. Because I yeah. think he's coming from like a politically conservative angle. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, then, and that's fine. We all have our political persuasions. That, that's and why I asked him the question I asked him at the beginning of my cross examination, which is like. Tell me more about like your your emotions, your feelings, your intuitions that make you feel so strongly about socialism that you're you know writing the book and taking the debate and stuff. Yeah. Um, and he, and he gave a helpful response. He sees this as an objective, clear cut, defined matter definition again, right? He sees it on the same level as you know abortion or you know other things. And I in some ways agree with him that like yeah, if you're a part of Catholics for Choice. You have a real uphill climb. You can think you're right. You can believe that in the long term you're going to be redeemed by the light of history. But it's not reasonable if you want to say that you're working within a kind of hermeneutic of continuity, orthodox framework. Like you have to, in some sense, dissent openly. There's a place in the church for dissent. It's not my thing, but that's – but you have to be open about it, right? Um, yeah. I think he believed that the only way to be a socialist and Catholic is in the same dissenting way. And my claim is, no, you can be faithful. Uh, you can you can be uh, devout. Uh, and you can accept the church's teaching with humility and in all the ways that we should, I believe, accept the church teaching. And that was a proposition that I think he found and still continues to find difficult to uh, 
just to imagine. Right. Well, I think because for him, he sees it as a slippery slope into yeah. totalitarianism. Sure. Like, like socialism is the Trojan horse. Yeah, yeah. He makes that argument in his book, too. It's not terribly unreasonable. I mean, like I said in the debate, I'd fully admit that like socialism was born in the same moment and from the same kind of pot of stew that communism and Marxism came. Here's the thing, though. When you jump into that pot, instead of kicking it down, the, you realize there are a whole bunch of other things in there, too, including Catholics. We were there at the beginning. People think Rerum Navarum is the moment when Catholics started talking about the real world. That's not true at all. Uh, the, the church uh, has maybe not always communicated globally, but it's always had its finger on the pulse. And it's, had its, it's, it's affected even mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the world in many ways. The church in the 19th century was deeply appalled at industrialism. I mean, industrialism was in some sense the pinnacle of modernism, and the church was very anti-modern at that time, you know, so. I also think it was the pinnacle of capitalism. Well, I, I maybe a particular kind of capitalism. Industrial capitalism, yeah, for sure. That yeah, exploited yeah. labor. Yeah, and also tore apart certain social institutions like the family and um, rural societies. So it forced people into cities, you know, and uh, concentrated uh, people into those kind of formations, which disrupted in some sense, the church's kind of geo geopolitical presence, you know, uh, in many ways, but it's a fascinating study. I wish more people would be like, not scared to like take off the gloves, chill out and dive into the history of the 19th century in Europe and read deeply and not just from people who are trying to sell you something, but just really try and understand what that scene was like. I've read, I've even taught, I'm going to come out as a Marxist professor, I've even taught Marx's Das Kapital, Volume 1, as recently as this last fall. It is a fascinating text. He's mainly talking about the laws prohibiting children from working in factories. Mm-hmm. Who's for that again? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like a lot of the a lot of the concerns he has, I think, are legitimate and moral and he doesn't talk as much about some of the things you might think. It's also really boring. He goes through tons of statistics. He's also deeply concerned, by the way, with an institution called chattel slavery, which is supplying a lot of the raw products and that is disappropriating goods from the from the Americas and and from India and, and the UK. And then later, especially in the French, in Africa. And he's like, look, surplus value doesn't just come from exploiting workers. It also comes from stealing people's stuff. Yeah. Uh, And that's a part of capitalism, by the way, that capitalists are really historically unable to account for is how much of the engine of industrial capitalism wasn't coming from the factories, but was actually coming from the uh, capacity of these capitalist states to go into other places and literally steal and expropriate uh, capital and also take people from other places, put them in other places, enslave them and not pay them, and then be able to develop more surplus value on the fact that the raw goods were really cheap because obviously you're not paying anyone. I mean, these are the things that people who are concerned about like the moral things of economy, I think should be deeply worried about. Because like today, I mean, I know like you're Mexican, I'm Mexican, like you know, a lot of our brothers and sisters are out working in fields that no one else will go to, no one else will work on, and no one else will do. And they're treated to this day in ways that no OSHA 
<laughs> no union, no, and they're and the reason is because they're desperate, and because the market, mm -hmm. such the cruel market, uh, allows for this to happen, and it's even happening here in Canada. I didn't know this, but there's actually people who come up over here to Abbotsford and areas here, and so even the Canadian, you know, white people don't like to pick their vegetables here too, right. and so like whenever I think of slavery, I think of shadow slavery, obviously, and I think BLM is a big open opens our heads to to the way that you know we and when you go to confession and you confess murder you still have temporal punishment you still got to go to jail yeah. god forgives you but you have to pay you have to pay restitutions that that's a catholic teaching whenever you enslave people for hundreds of years and then segregate them for another hundred years 50 years 65 years after the fact you don't get to be like oh it's in the past no temporal punishment is a real moral concept blm is waking us up to the fact that we have not dealt with the sin of racism in this country and i think that extends into questions of like the not only the enslaved people but anyone who is working under pain of force or feeling not free you know, it's it's the migrant workers. It's people, you know, picking strawberries and apples and stuff like that. And, you know, for whatever reason, the American Catholic Church has been on the side of the migrant worker morally and pastorally, but not so much as politically. Sadly, I think because yeah. the abortion issue has been so paramount, you know, and, and there was that, uh, I don't know, I don't want to go down too much this rabbit hole, but, you know, Cardinal Dolan on the phone with, with Trump, basically telling Trump, like, hey, I call you more than I call my mother. Like, yeah. there is this weird alliance between... I mean, I, I, I like Cardinal Dolan. <laughs> so do I. Don't get me I, wrong. Yeah, I played, I played at a, a youth conference whenever he was the Bishop of Milwaukee, and I, I sure liked him then. And when I remember seeing him, though, he was electric. I was like, man, this guy's... Not going to be in Milwaukee forever. But uh, I think there's something deeper maybe than – because I also don't like this whole like blame the bishops for everything because there is a democratic sense in the church. It's called the sensus fidei, the sense of the faithful, right? And and we are the church, right? And so the, the, to me the question is that like let's just take our community. Like how many Mexican-Americans are Catholic? Tons. Yeah. Everybody knows this. Why is the mainstream Catholic voice – and face and identity and politics so starkly white yeah and not even particularly ethnic like it's not like like if it was like all like italian and irish and like that would make sort of some sense right you know but it's very like kind of like americanized whitewashed mainstream you know raymond arroyo oh yeah <laughs> you know like, who knows? Arroyo. Like, maybe the dude's hey. like Raza. Like, you know, but it's about a certain aesthetic presentation. Because as we know, Latinos, we can kind of, you know, we can hit the bath, bat from both sides. We can play white as well and pass. Um, what I'm trying to, not if you wear Guayabera, though, bro, you're going to have to put on the polo shirt, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. You got to put on the good golf cap like I'm there wearing, you, you know. Um, my point, though, is that like, I think it's a real question that uh, – and in Latin America, you see this too, that like the curia and the authorities tend to, to be very light mestizos or criollos and you know yeah. the, the indigena, the, the, the real brown 
you know, doesn't, and you see it in political leadership. And I think that these things, on the one hand, I do worry sometimes because I actually am quite averse to identity politics, you know, and I, uh, I attended Franciscan. I'm like, you know, I think I was given a lot of opportunities from the culture that in some sense I might be said to be critical of. But at the same time, I'm also, I'm not from there. That's not like who I am. And so I became very uncomfortable in the kind of stupid middle culture with the fact that like, man, life team is for middle class, upper middle class and upper middle class suburban white kids. Yeah. You know, now do the suburbs have people of color? And so, yeah, obviously like <laughs> yeah. Uh, the times are changing yet. There's still this cultural aesthetic, right? That comes across and there's still this feeling that like when I go to Steubenville South, I need to like kind of be kind of white. And as a guy who like knows how to be whatever you need me to be, like I know how to do that. And it's cool. And I like being white sometimes. Like it's 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 the thing, you know? Yeah. You're like a chameleon. Right. And yeah. you know, and, and you do what you need to do. But like, you know, I gave this example in the previous podcast where like I played basketball on a cement slab. That was the former foundation for a chapel called La Capilla de Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe. That was the Mexican church. And St. Patrick's was the white church. And they had a segregated – and in West Texas, this was the norm. There was like a Mexican smaller chapel. And and, and you could see growing up – I don't know how it is in California, but in Texas, like we still have bilingual masses – and a parish will have like a Spanish mass and then an English mass. And like as a music minister and as growing up in this, you see these cultural tensions, you know, yeah. like at the Our Father, where if they're saying it in English, you know, a little uh-huh. viejita will say it in Spanish, you know. And if they're saying it in Spanish, you know, someone will say it in English. And maybe it's because it's what they know best. But sometimes there's an edge on that, you know. And um I think these are things that the mainstream culture doesn't understand. But in terms of like the politics of socialism and of the left, well, it just so happens that like there is a broad coalition of working class people of color, by the way, many times in coalition with very poor white people. This is Mm. one thing people don't realize, man, no one is as anti-fascist as like Woody Guthrie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like there is a real deep American white, left culture that is not professors like me and stuff but this is like straight up workers you know and and folk music and and that kind of stuff but all i'm trying to say here is that like that is obviously not the cultural aesthetic of catholicism tm on catholic radio and in the media and in the mainstream of catholic culture um, but I've always seen it as one of many things that I might do in my life as a cradle Catholic who loves the church and who loves the American church is to start to move some of this social capital that I've been blessed with to kind of open up the the window a bit to see that. Yeah. When uh, we had Trump elected and there were some fears about ICE in our community, mm-hmm. you know, I actually teach, we talked about this earlier, I teach junior high, eighth yeah. grade eighth grade U.S. history. And uh, our students are overwhelmingly Mexican-American. There are, mm-hmm. A lot of them actually are children who are brought here by their parents from Mexico. Yeah. Dreamer. A lot of, a lot of them, some, yeah, they're dreamers, like sometimes recently. Yeah. Uh, and so when Trump was elected, this was a very real fear for a lot of our students. 
actually that they might be deported, their parents could be deported, what have you. And so I went and talked to um, the priest, the, the pastor of my church, and I was like, dude, you guys need to like step up your game, reaching mm. out to ICE. And thank God, he's like, we're already doing that. We're having That's meetings awesome. with ICE. Yeah. So that, that gave me a huge um, yeah. sigh of relief there because I want our church to be more in touch with the community, as you said, which is, many times is so brown, but forgotten. Yeah. Although, you know, you're you're totally right to... I was focused more on the church's neglect of workers and labor politics, but I think on immigration, the church has led in a useful way. Whenever uh, the issue of immigration comes up, the the church, the the, and I'm here talking about like the United Council of the, the United the yeah. U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops. You know, I know some. I, I actually know the 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 bishop. Um, he's the bishop of Austin. Uh, I grew up. He was a pastor in San Angelo. I, I grew up uh, knowing him, Joe Vasquez. But but this is a new thing as well. Like you know, the Latin American Latino bishops are are a new face on the mainstream of Catholic culture, and I think that things take time. Um, I'm actually not a radical. I believe it's good to take time because that way people's consciences can form and you can kind of be awakened to yeah the moral truth of things. But uh, yeah, on immigration, I think that's a position that is actually really. Uh, a really bright white line. Like, like I'm almost willing to like, con- let's concede questions of political economy. Yeah. Let's talk about immigration, right? Yeah. Uh, like, and not just, not just Mexicans and Guatemalans and Hondurans, but like refugees and, and how we feel about, you know, the global, the global church, the church that's not American. Uh-huh. Um, and I think there you get a, a really strong read as well of a certain ideology that does pervade the culture but that I do believe, and this is what's been so encouraging to me about Black Lives Matter, as tragic and as hurtful as the events that spurred it on were, is I'm seeing people speaking up as Catholics. And I'm not just talking about black people or indigenous people or people of color, or Latinos or whatever. I mean, white people stepping in and and standing in where they would have stood back or where they might have asked some questions and standing in solidarity with us. And I think that's really important. And I believe that the the Catholic has all the moral foundation to do that. And I think we're going to see more of it. I really do. I, I'm hopeful. Yes, I, that's the one thing that I do as we wrap up, because I've kept you way beyond the time I said I would keep you. But no I, I think I talk hope, a lot. <laughs> I totally appreciate it. I'm, I'm learning uh, so much from you here in this conversation. But Hope, I think, is what we have to hold on to moving forward in these troubled times right now. As we wrap up, just one final question. I kind of was thinking about this after the debate. Is the label socialism even useful anymore? Mm. Can we just move forward with those policies or with that spirit without using the term because it's become so loaded? It's only become loaded in communities that have people who claim that it that it can't be said. Mm-hmm. So, like in the a, United States, in the United States, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a U.S. thing. Now, obviously, it's going to be a a different thing everywhere. But I don't like the idea of getting rid of socialism, and I like the fact that the word socialist has kind of been put back into the public square by people like AOC and David Bentley Hart, and like a lot of different kinds of people. People forget that as soon as AOC was elected, her first public word was in America Magazine. That's right. Jesuits. She was advocating for uh, prison reform or something. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so she's she's part of the church as well. 
And I feel like the word socialism, precisely because it's so, it's an irritant, shows me that it needs to stay. Because socialism, unlike capitalism, which has a kind of a utopian vision of the market and the good life emerging from that, also mm. communism, which has a utopian vision of the rev revolution and the abolition of classes, uh, like uh, anarchy and the abolition of the state, socialism actually doesn't have a constructive project. It is simply a reaction and a critique of the overdeterminations of certain capitalist utopianism, certain communist utopianism, certain fascist ethno theocratic <laughs> utopian visions. Uh, the anarchists, frankly, are, have never gotten any traction. But if they did, I think the socialists would have a, a response to that. But that's what socialism means. And it's meant to irritate people. And I think the fact that it's still irritating them and the fact that the American discourse pushes so strongly, it, it's, it's more reason for that. But I do believe that if you want to substitute for socialism, because Jacques Maritain, uh, mm -hmm. he was a French uh, philosopher, Thomas. He knew Mounier. They were both French. So all French people know each other. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. But Mounier advocated for so, for Christian socialism and Catholic socialism under the, his banner of personalism. Maritain agreed with pretty much all of Mounier's principles, but he wasn't willing to concede Christian socialism he he chose to stay with what he called Christian democracy or Catholic demo, uh, Christian democracy, really. And I think that's also good. Another way to express this in more less political terms is what you might call Christian humanism or Catholic humanism. We th often think of humanism as being secular and kind of John Lennon. But there is a tradition of Christian humanism and Catholic humanism that both Mounier and Maritain would be a part of. Um, these are eligible substitutes, but I would say to the person who's like, man, I agree with all this stuff. I just don't want to use like the word socialist. Part of the reason why these changes are needed is precisely because they're going to be like the Magnifica. They're going to, they're going to confront power. And I don't think it's a good idea to be too worried because one's language confronts the powerful. I think as a Christian, we're called to be bold and to proclaim with with Mary something that's going to actually irritate the powerful. So the moment that Trent Horn is not interested in debating me <laughs> is the moment where I'm not interested in being a socialist anymore. The moment that Catholic Answers isn't, you know, printing this book and that this kind of cultural response isn't the the go-to scare card. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's the moment we can drop it and we can move on to something else. But you are right that, like, for me, I'm much more attached to probably personalism than I am to socialism. My socialism is simply an affiliation in terms of my political associations, but at the heart of it, it's my understanding of the person. And I believe that there is no such thing as an individual. Persons are always in relation, and persons like the person, like like God in the Trinity. Uh, to be a person is to be in a relationship. And that's why I ended, by the way, with uh, he Hebrew scripture and the idea that God didn't create alone. He consulted with the angels, Rashi says. So that's why he said, let us create man in our image. So for me, socialism is motivated not really by the politics, but by this idea of the true nature of the human person, which I believe is always opposed to individualism 
and also opposed to a kind of negative idea of freedom. Yeah, and I, I like the idea kind of along those lines of whether it's socialism or whether it's Catholic social justice, mm-hmm. that our goal should be to comfort the afflicted and then afflict the comfortable. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm not a socialist. I'm I'm still learning about all these things myself. But, you know, the aspiration in terms of providing the basic needs for human beings made in the image of God, Absolutely. that is so attractive to me, especially yeah. when it comes to capitalism, when you put money or capital ahead of people. Yeah. That to me is just so wrong. I mean, to me, there's there's no more radical prayer in our tradition than 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 the the magnificat you know my soul proclaims the greatness of the lord my spirit rejoices of god my savior for he has looked with favor on his humble servant from this day all generations will call me blessed and the almighty has done great things for me and holy is his name he has mercy on those who fear him in every generation he has shown the strength of his arm he has scattered the proud in their conceit he has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the humble he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I mean, what That's else beautiful. What else are we supposed to believe and practice uh, as Catholics? And I guess, like, look, I believe in realities more than words. That's why I took the approach I took to language in the debate. Uh-huh. So, you know, as I think about your, your question, like, yeah, I guess I'm willing to say that, like, I'm not going to stop saying socialist because it annoys people. But if you're not as annoying as I am, sure, don't be a socialist. But don't you dare think that the ethos that we find in the Magnificat is optional to your faith. Yeah, exactly. I used to do the Liturgy of the Hours. Mm-hmm. I loved reciting the Magnificat because of that. It yeah. is very radical. It's very revolutionary. Ooh. And Fill it's the hungry with good things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the rich he has sent away empty. Yeah, beautiful. That's a good place to end right there, Sam. Nice. Thank you so much. God bless you uh, for your time. I will continue to follow all of your amazing tweets. Uh, where can our listeners find more of your work? Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I have a website, just my name, Sam Rocha, S-A-M-R-O-C-H-A.com. There's a long bio. The homepage is usually something I'm sharing. So right now I have my debate case still up if people want to read the negative case I wrote for that. And they can see the link. I think next to it I have a, a little song that I wrote recently that's that's a, a SoundCloud link. You can read my bio, which is really long because no one knows me. So you can download my academic CV. And if you want to follow links, there's a links that just takes you to like everything from music to academic articles to all kinds of stuff. I think a person who might want to see what I thought probably more than what I think, but also what I think or the foundation of of where these ideas come. I have a book of essays I published in 2017 called Tell Them Something Beautiful. Um, It was endorsed by David Bentley Hart. Some other people, uh, including a Jesuit priest who I think is kind of identifies as a kind of a liberation theologian. But um, I think think that book uh, supplies my thoughts on things. I think one will also be surprised to see that I'm probably I'm I'm definitely less socialist in that book to be honest uh, than mm-hmm. I am now. But if 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 anyone was interested, I think that would be a decent book. If someone is interested in maybe my thoughts on education and philosophy, I have a really short book called A Primer for Philosophy and Education. I use it a lot with like um, student teachers and teacher candidates when I teach them here. Um, but yeah, you know, it's all open. In 2014, I put out the world's first Augustinian soul album. It's a power trio soul interpretation of Augustine's Confessions. That's out on wow. all digital outlets. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there, um, but mainly, you know, I'm popping off on Twitter all the time. And the main thing, though, is really I'm really blessed as a tenured academic that like I'm not I'm not in a position where I need to 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 make a living off of this. So if anyone finds themselves like unable to afford something or would like resources that they couldn't otherwise get or whatever, uh, I'm always happy to find a way. Uh, to to get them whatever they need. So don't be shy. And uh, really what I'm doing here is a project of love for for the church. And uh, thankfully, I have a day job. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. And just by way of uh, kind of affirming everything you're doing, I'm in the middle of watching your de- other debate with Professor Webb. Yeah, Steve. You guys look like you're really good friends. You have great banter back and forth. So yeah. I don't want you to feel bad about this. Uh, it's really beautiful that you bring this up, and I want to thank you for bringing it up. Um, that happened whenever I was at Wabash College, which is my first place. And believe it or not, the Newman Center, which is all these Catholic Midwestern mainly kids, uh-huh. uh, men. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a men's college, so there were no women there. But uh, uh, they wanted us to talk about Catholic social teaching and economics, right? So people saying that this is a new idea that happened in the last two years, that was like 2011 or 12. It's a tragic thing for me to watch because because Webb uh, was my friend. He 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 passed away. Took his life. Um, oh no, I didn't know that. No, but it's really important though because whenever I was preparing for this, I felt guilty that I was seeing Trent debating, and I was like, man, this guy's got no intel on me, and I'm over here just like benefiting from all this you know, he's all over the place. So, so I, I, I was like, and I, I remembered, oh, but I debated Steve, man. So I'll send him my debate with Steve. And when I did that, I watched it again and it was very, um, it was healing for me to watch it again and to see that Steve is such a great example to me of someone who was dyed in the wool conservative. Mm. He was just, you know, he was he was an iconoclast, you know. He wrote this crazy essay in First Things about how like soccer is ruining America. Like he was that kind of a guy, you know. Yeah. And and I deeply, deeply uh, loved Steve and was crushed whenever he passed away. And I, I flew out for his funeral and and a lot of people, a lot of people from Wabash were watching my debate with Trent and remembering, you know, our debate. Who also loves Steve, yeah. and you know. That was a real gift that I don't know when it'll be appropriate for me to tell Trent or Catholic that like there was something beyond the politics and the debate going on for me personally that was very meaningful and at the same time too human to like break open. Uh, you know, so I appreciate you bringing it up, and I know that you had no idea. <laughs> no, I feel horrible. No, but I don't want you to because okay. it's something that I've actually been wanting to find a way to make some, to give some some speech to, and to yeah. talk in a way, because I think it's like at the core of this like radical mission. Some people believe that capitalists or people on the right cannot or do not love the poor. And Steve, to me, was always someone who the way he lived his life showed me by example yeah. that he deeply loved the poor. All I wanted to point out is that, like, I don't know Trent and he doesn't know me. And there's some, something kind of tragic about our debate that we didn't get to be in the same room and that we don't know each other and that we weren't 
we didn't have the benefit of eating lunch beforehand or grabbing beers afterwards, or there was there was something kind of inhumane I felt about the debate that I I deeply actually regret. Although it was no one's fault, right? Like it's just the COVID world we're living in and stuff like yeah. that. But I think like my biggest critique of the debate though is that it was so different than my debate with Steve. Although Steve, after that debate with him, he didn't talk to me for three months. Are you serious? He, he was so mad at me uh, because oh. people were saying I won. And so like, you know, he got mad. Um, but that was who he was. And that was so beautiful. Yeah. That was such a beautiful part of our relationship too, that like we were playing for keeps. In some sense, we went a lot harder at each other. You did, but <laughs> you guys had such, like I said, good banter. Like you guys were kind of being well, self-deprecating. We yeah, yeah. But we also were... coming at each other. Yeah, yeah. It was it's a fun debate. It really yeah. is. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's something that I that I I I think it's the ideal for vigorous debate is the capacity to have friendship. Aristotle has this beautiful line in the ethics where he says, Among friends, there's no need for justice. I love that. That's beautiful. Ooh, it blows me away. And I think that like this is where you when you drill into my personalism and my socialism and whatever, uh -huh. you do see that there is this kind of place where like, look, my aim isn't justice. Mm -hmm. It's beyond justice. It's love. It's friendship. And I know that that's impossible, but I do believe that there, that it's practical to talk about these impossible things as the things that we search for and so whenever um i just watched the the john coltrane netflix uh thing and it talks so much about how like after the church in alabama was blown up and those kids died mm. he recorded an album called alabama that was largely based on martin luther king's sermon he gave there but that for him it was not just about mourning or political defiance or whatever it was also this deeply human message of, of love and like Coltrane's great magnum opus was love supreme yeah and and for him that love he understood Coltrane uh understood that love to be divine love to be directed at god and like you know to me the person who made me a socialist mm -hmm. was benedict the 16th wow i think some catholic answers people's heads are exploding right now Deus Caritas Est, where yes. he picks up Nietzsche, the great atheist, mm -hmm. and he kind of responds to his critique that Christianity inverts love and 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 puts down eros, and he brings up eros. A few months later, he puts out this Ubi et Orbi address called the Mad Eros of the Cross, where he goes even further than he went in his encyclical, and he said, "Look, agape is eros." You know, he just breaks open the, mm. the the division, and that just blew my mind. And then I kept studying him, Spesalvi. I went back to Introduction to Christianity, and and you know, no contemporary mind has as deeply affected me as a person and as an intellectual as. Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger and Benedict the Sixteenth, and it's his social vision that I believe is directed at this erotic divine love as its kind of maxim, and it's radical and it's out there and it's um, more than we can probably take in the everyday discourse. But I think it's like I love the Catholic intellectual tradition not just because I am Catholic because that's uh -huh. his identity, right? <laughs> um, I love it because it's deep and it's thick and it's 
millennia old. So anyway, that's why I'm doing all this. And that's why I'm so juiced up about it. And that's why I love to talk about it with people. And, uh, and I'm glad you brought all that up. Because by the way, Webb and I were both Roman Catholics. Yeah. And I loved uh, that he pulled open his shirt and there was that Obama. Or was it Obama? I'm yeah, it was it. Obama's so, Mao. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That cracked me up. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for dedicating so much time. Thank you for all of your work promoting basically just good Catholic social justice. And uh, I appreciate everything you've done. And I uh, hopefully we can cross paths again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to be back on with your uh, with your partner. We can. Uh, uh, he, you said he's uh, he's got some different ideas than you do, so he can maybe give me a bit of a. Yeah, he's the uh, son of a Lutheran pastor. He Joel. He's salt of the earth. Cool. He's he's the best part of the show. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we'll get. Uh, hopefully, I can get back in and talk to both of you sometime. I would love that. Thank All right. you so much. Yeah, thank you. No worries. Take care, man. All right. Cheers. Take my heart to my head, cause I know that instead I. Think too much. Sing her words in my ear, cause my soul needs to hear your gentle touch. Alright, so as we wrap up our show, I want to thank Sam for being our guest. I certainly learned a lot in our conversation, and I hope our listeners did as well. You can check out what he has to share on his website, samrocha.com. Um, he's also on YouTube, Twitter, where he's popping off. And he's on uh, Facebook. So, yeah, check out his stuff. It's great. Now, in this part of our show, we like to share something that we are watching or listening to or reading. Um, This week, I wanted to discuss this amazing new Netflix show. It's climbed the charts. It's one of the best shows on Netflix, apparently, of all time, according to the ratings. Um, The Floor is Lava. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) We all have been, you know, little kids... Climbing on our living couch, room. couch surfing. Yeah, and going the floor is love, and jumping from the couch to the chair, yeah. and coffee table to the ottoman, or whatever yeah. else, you know. And so this show kind of brings our childhood games into adulthood. Yeah, because all the contestants are adults. Yes, and they're traversing this room, and the floor is quote unquote lava. It's this kind of reddish orange. It's liquid. Liquid. Whatever it is. I'm assuming it's water. And when we watch the show, just spoiler, people fall into it and they disappear. Yes. You don't ever see somebody come back or surface out of this lava. No, you don't. So I don't know, like, where they go. I don't know if they cut the cameras and pull them out. Is there someone down there? Right. You know, like, kind of pulling them down and and leads them to, like, an exit? Or do they just... Or is it just cut scene let them get out, right. you know, and we just never see it. But, uh, yeah, they, they disappear. <laughs> they disappear. They straight for, up. For yeah, they're gone. All intents and purposes. Yeah. But the courses, though, it's, it's like the solar system and jumping from planet to planet oh, and you're yeah. going to the console with a red button or there's a rocket ship you're jumping on like but there's ropes too there's ropes you can pull yeah. that then uh lets down another piece of furniture or something else that they can mm-hmm. traverse or or you're climbing across on. the inside of a canoe you're using like the seats like a monkey bar situation yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm sitting there like a crazy person yelling at the TV, like, go this way. No, don't right. go that way. Yeah. Like, use this, you know, jump or hold on to the rope. And I'm giving them advice like they can hear me through the TV. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, honestly, I would do really well. Well, we're all chair experts. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. This is how I would do it. Yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's so fun. It's hilarious. I love watching people look on their face when they slip off an object mm -hmm. and into the mysterious lava. Well, I gotta mention, there's always, because it's usually in groups of three. Mm -hmm. They have had uh, a few episodes where it's just uh, a couple, you know, two people. But there's always that third person. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got one person going this way, one person going the other way, and that one person who just doesn't want to get off that platform. True. They're frozen. They are frozen. They're very happy to just watch the other two uh, navigate the course and right. learn from perhaps their their uh, mistakes. <laughs> and it's like, you gotta get you got to get some skin in the game, literally. Get in there and, and start doing something because they're timed. Yeah, they're timed. They're timed as well. And you get points for the number of contestants who um, makes it to the finish line. Right. But I always wonder, are the objects they're jumping onto or crash onto, are they solid? Are they foam? And you can see. I don't know if you've noticed as much as I have, but they're, they're foam-ish. Ish. Like kind of a harder foam. Because they crash Even hard. those crates have a little give. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not sure if you noticed that, but it's like, I can't imagine that those things are too solid because mm -hmm. they must sign like a waiver, some sort of liability mm -hmm. uh, clause or paperwork or, or something. Because so those crashes, they, <laughs> they look painful. Oh, yeah. Uh, it totally reminded me of shows like Wipeout or Takeshi's Castle or MXC. These shows. Okay, MXC is the original. It's the OG. It's the OG. <laughs> MXC has a huge place in my heart. I, I mean, that, that was that was back in the day. So, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned, all these other shows are just counterfeit or ripoffs. But yeah, MXC shout out is the OG. Yeah, those shows are classic. MXC especially because they have the horrible dubbing. Oh, that's like the best part. Yeah, it's horrible, One which, of the makes, best parts. which makes it hilarious because yeah. it's so bad. But And I don't there, think that there's they're... There's Guy LaDouche. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I can't remember the other guy's name, but, you know. But they weren't as conscientious of their contestants because those looked painful, legit. Yeah. Like, they're falling from high distances. They're getting hit by moving... You know, revolving arms. Well, I mean, everything had some sort of padding on yeah. it. It wasn't like savage, but uh, yeah, it looked yeah. painful nonetheless. But yes, it did look painful. I think no matter how soft the surface is, right. there's going to be some some pain. There's an ouch factor. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, sit back, watch um, the floor is lava. It's a great family show. Hilarious. Streaming now on Netflix. Check it out. Yeah. All right, thank you so much for joining us on our humble little podcast. You could do us a huge, huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. And be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find this show. And be sure to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Conversation on Tap. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Christina, for hosting. And cheers. Cheers. See you guys next week.